Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Helix and Gene Zanatomy 101 podcast. Um, and uh, today we have uh, Professor Masoud Akhtari visiting us here from the Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, welcome to the show, and uh, Thank you. you know, thanks for doing this. Masoud happens to be my wife's uncle. Um, and even though we haven't had too many interactions uh, because he lives uh, in the other side of the world, <laughs> so to say, you know, every time we get together, it, it, it's some of the most interesting conversations him and I get into. So sure. I thought this would be fantastic. He's 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 one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and I've met a lot of smart guys. <laughs> so I'm going to set the bar here pretty high for him. Um, but uh, so... So Masood, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where what you currently do uh, at the moment, uh, and just a little intro about who you are. Okay. So my name is Masood Akhtari, and uh, I uh, started at University of Utah studying physics, math and chemistry, and uh, then moved to California and was a University of California Irvine, UCLA, and UCLA, and then moved to New Mexico, Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico, where I got my PhD in physics, and then moved back to UCLA in 2003 and became a faculty. And uh, my research has been uh, mostly uh, in localizing the electrical and magnetic sources of the brain for epilepsy. Wow. Right, and uh, also for localizing different functional areas of the brain for pre-surgical mapping for, so that when you take pieces of the brain out for epilepsy surgery, you stay away from the parts that control your sensations and your movement of arm and speech and so forth. So, uh, I love how he like says that, like it's like Tuesday morning. <laughs> that's like, that's such a like huge, broad, difficult thing to get across and done. It's like, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you do it, it becomes a job, it becomes routine. So, um, back in the 90s, we started uh, with. Uh, reconstructing the brain uh, in three dimensions using MRI and then solving the electromagnetic equations uh, to uh, localize the activities that we saw using uh, measurements of the magnetic field and the electric field. But what we found out was that uh, because of the nature of how electromagnetism works. Uh, if you had one source of epileptic activity in the brain, we could localize it pretty accurately. But if you had more than one, then you had infinite number of sources, which became equally valid. Hmm. So uh, then uh, the question became an it became how do you localize these? So the solution we came up with was uh, uh, making uh, these machines basically that would get attracted to the locations of activity in the brain 
of, of epileptic activity. And m these machines not only found the locations, but made them visible on imaging, such as MRI. Wow. Right. So... Uh, what is this machine? What does that entail? Is it a chip? Is it a, is it a die? Is it... Like, what is it? What is, so, how does that work? So we call it uh, nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, basically the difference between nanotechnology as far as medicine is concerned and uh, in usual drugs such as aspirin or penicillin is that aspirin and penicillin and uh, a lot of other drugs are designed to do one thing. So for example, aspirin was uh, designed to, or found, people found out that it can uh, alleviate pain or penicillin can kill bacteria. So uh, with nanotechnology, we can make drugs that do more than one thing at a time. So for example, these machines for localization of the sources in the brain, not only they're designed to cross into the brain from the blood, it's called the blood-brain barrier, but also recognize the areas that are problematic, also make invisible on imaging, such as MRI. So like they do three things instead of just one thing. Another thing that we have done, we can also, since we can target the location of the disease, we can also deliver drugs to them specifically to mm. cure them. Using the same technology? Using the same technology. Oh, so it detects it, shows you where it is, and it has a system that can deliver what there, you need. There is, right. So wow. what that does is that it decreases the side effects. Right. So because, for example, when you take penicillin, inject yourself with penicillin or take a tetracycline pill, it goes everywhere in your body. Mm -hmm. And obviously not all your body needs it. Right. There are specific places that need it. So if you can deliver it to a particular diseased area, you decrease the side effects in the rest of the body. Hmm. Right. That's so, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's the next generation. I, of, right. That's right. what it should be. <laughs> and what it should be, right. So yeah, what we have also found out is that, um, and this is an incidental finding, is that uh, with nanotechnology, we can increase the efficacy of drugs. So not only you decrease the side effects by targeting the disease, so you uh, don't distribute it everywhere in the body, also, you increase the uh, potency of the drugs. So you need to give lesser doses. That also decreases side effects mm. because now you have lesser doses. Uh, how we do that is uh, in this particular ca particular case is uh, uh, benchtop chemistry. Okay. And what's that? So you start with uh, like ten or twenty different components. Mm -hmm. And under chemi particular chemical conditions, such as the temperature and the pH, which is the acidity or basic properties, you can uh, increase or decrease the size of the, these nanoparticles. Now, the, uh, these nanoparticles are the one we use are about 10 nanometers, okay? Mm. What that means are about one thousandth of a human width of a human hair. <laughs> okay. So they're, they're extremely tiny, and the way we look at them is through electron microscope. Wow. So we can actually see them. Um, 
And then uh, once the core is made, then we can attach different targeting agents on them, depending on what the disease is. And how we know what the targeting agents are is based on the uh, uh, medical data over the last 100 years or so. So can this platform sort of say, this mm -hmm. outline mm -hmm. for this type of detection and delivery mm -hmm. for epilepsy mm -hmm. be done for Alzheimer's, be done for, like, like where does that go? Like, what are the, you know, are there limitations? Are we learning the limitations? Where mm -hmm. are we with mm -hmm. it? So the way this is uh, developed is that we first search what is unique about particular diseases. For example, in epilepsy, what is unique about the disease is that the parts of the brain that are active during epilepsy, they pick up glucose a lot, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, so if you attach glucose to something that is visible in MRI, when the epilepsy, uh, epi what we call it, epileptogenic zone becomes activated, it picks up this glucose more than the rest of the brain. So you can see a higher concentration of these visible mm. drugs in those areas. In case of Alzheimer's, uh, there are uh, particular malformed proteins, okay? They're called tau proteins. So these proteins have uh, certain properties that makes them different than what naturally happens in the brain, mm. okay? And uh, these uh, proteins call, cause damage, which eventually destroys brain cells and causes plaques and so forth. So we can find particular molecules that specifically attach to these uh, malformed proteins, but no, not normal proteins, okay? Mm -hmm. So we have designed uh, also drugs that go to Alzheimer's. We have designed drugs that go to Parkinson's disease, we have designed drugs that go into cancers, brain cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. So um, the nice thing about this is that it is uh, extremely versatile, so virtually you have infinite option of training these nanomachines to go to any particular disease, as long as there's something you know about the disease to begin with. So this sounds very revolutionary, and you know, and, and it's I, the next stage. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, since I've known you, I know you've been working on this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is this is obviously not an overnight project, sort of say. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is something you've been working on. You know, I twenty since, years. Yeah, ago. I mean, we I met you ten years ago, and, yeah. and you were working on this. Yeah. So, you know, and. Where are we from a society standpoint in terms of, you know, what's needed to take this step? I mean, you know, is like, is this this beautiful concept car that you go to the car show and you see, and then like five years from now, you possibly go, oh, well, this car could have X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. Or is this like, no, 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 this is here. Mm -hmm. We need more studies on it. And, right. you know, we, we just need to get this thing going. Right. And, and what are those steps? Like, how does that work? Okay, so a very good example of where things are at is, is self-driving cars. Right. Self-driving cars are here. Yeah. Okay. But they use certain programs, for example, where the curves are 
where the uh, stop signs are, uh, do not enter signs, or the stop light is. So uh, although the self-driving cars are here, the streets are not designed for self-driving cars. So they are adopting the self-driving cars to the streets the way they are. Okay. So uh, uh, where we are at right now is that the proof of concept is there. Um, one of the issues, for example, that is being dealt with by the uh, government agencies right now is that, for example, you make uh, a batch of penicillin. Penicillin is a relatively simple molecule. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we have technology that when you make penicillin, you can uh, put a, a small sample of a milligram of it inside the machine, such as NMR. It tells you exactly where every atom in that molecule is and what the structure looks like. Okay? Mm. And for purity, uh, you can put it in a machine such as HPLC and then, uh, or infrared imaging, or there are many other technologies where uh, you can uh, tell that this is 99.9% .9 pure. Now, with nanotechnology, each one of these uh, machines has uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of molecules attached to it. It's, it's composed of. So we don't have the technology right now to uh, say that every atom in this machine is here. Therefore, when we make it, the purity is 99.9% .9 of every atom being in this part of the structure, mm. okay? Now, uh, where you run into problem is that the, for example, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., the FDA, they have a uh, protocol for what is accepted to be given, like injected into a human, right, or mm -hmm. a pill. Those criteria currently don't apply to nanotechnology. So they're basically checkboxes. They say that, okay, so the structure is this, this is the machine I used, this is what I saw. So the question is that, how do you comply with that? And the answer is that we don't have the technology to comply with that. So how do you get around that? Is that there are new criteria needed, such as assays, that if I, for example, may make a nano machine that is supposed to shrink a tumor, okay? So, uh, and uh, you set a standard that uh, if the nanomachine is working, the tumor is gonna go from five centimeters, let's say, to one centimeter or disappear. So if I take a uh, tumor from a number of patients, I put it in a Petri dish, and or I take some animals that have the tumor and I give it this new drug and the tumor shrinks, then that's good enough because we have proven that this uh, 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 compound that we made is doing what it's supposed to do, mm -hmm. although we don't know exactly what every atom is. 
Got it. So the question is, is going from exact to it's good enough functionally. <laughs> right. So that, and then also you look at the side effects, obviously. Right. So if you give it to the animal, I mean, the biggest thing, if the animal doesn't die, that's good. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's not lethal. Right. So that's the first step. Right. Or what, uh, for example, currently FDA, one of the criteria is called LDD50, which is lethal dose of 50% of the animals. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you want the LD50 to be, for example, 100 times or 1,000 times of the efficacious dose. So if you take an animal and give it 100 times the dose and uh, the animal survives, that means if, if you give it one dose, the chance of surviving is quite good. Right. But if you find out that you give that the effective dose is one milligram and you give the animal five milligram and half of them die, that's not good. Got it. Okay? So those are the criteria that needs to be defined and the government has put together commissions to study what are these criteria that need to be updated or be assigned particularly to this class of drugs. Now, internationally, is different. So nanotechnology is much more in use outside of the U.S. than it is inside of the U.S. And because they are quicker coming up with uh, different um, uh, criteria of accepting. And one of the reasons for that is uh, legal issues. That uh, in most other countries, uh, the legal system is not as litigious in medicine as it is in the U.S., so mm -hmm. you need to be careful what you do. That's very interesting. So you not only have the limiting factor of trying to figure out everything you need to about this drug, but mm -hmm. there's also no protocol <laughs> that, that tells exactly you, what it is. <laughs> tells you like, exactly. how to put this thing together like so it's applicable. Like, it, it's, it, that's how do you nuts. comply right. with the protocols, how, accept the protocols? Exactly. Right, so that's, that, that's like a pretty uh, uphill battle right there you guys are facing. Absolutely, yes. Yes. That's so interesting. And and it's groundbreaking. You know, one of the things that we do here is mm -hmm. we're looking at, okay, what is preventative health care, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we're running into the same problem. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking around and we're like, there's really no protocol for preventative health care. There, there's no, there's nothing to follow. So we're like, oh, wow, we have to create this thing, right? And then That's you right. run into the same issues at the same thing. Okay, right. what can you do? What can't you do? Certain tests are prohibited in New York. Certain mm -hmm. tests are not allowed here. Certain things are not effective. Some mm -hmm. things are considered pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. Some things, you know, and it's like you're looking at this whole slew of things mm -hmm. and you're like, like <laughs> you're handcuffed. You're like, where do I go? Right. For example, I mean, on that preventive medicine subject, uh, one of the biggest stumbling blocks are the, are the cultural idea that uh, don't fix the fame broke right so <laughs> waiting right. for it to get broke is a lot more expensive to fix than uh, <laughs> right <laughs> tightening screws every couple of weeks right or, right or at least look at it make sure it's working fine right right, right. That's or, or detect something ahead detect of time something. exactly exactly 
so the problem uh, with uh, criteria that apply to that is that there have been companies such as Total Body Scan where uh, if you want to pay for it, you can go out and get a Total Body Scan. Uh, the problem with that is that more often than not, you find something that is not significant, but you don't know that because the uh, technology we have right now, such as CT scan and uh, MRI, most of the times they show something, but they don't tell you what it is. Mm. Okay, so with this nanotechnology, we can actually show you what it is, right. which is a big step ahead. Uh, the problem is... Uh, with probably a few thousand dollars or less, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, you can get a total body scan. Uh, but once you find something, finding out what it is has two problems. One is that it costs a lot uh, to figure out what it is. Number two is that the damage you do to figure out what it is could be worse than actually if you <laughs> wear something. Right. An example would be that... Uh, a, a physician, and this was, I think, on NPR many years ago, when I got a total body scan that they found a little nodule in his lung. And uh, uh, he spent, and this is 10, 12 years ago, whatever, spent $42,000 figuring out that this nodule was nothing. But the way they definitively figure out what that nodule is to stick a needle and do a biopsy. Mm. But when you start sticking needles into the chest, you can hit the heart, you can poke a hole in the lung, you can hit an artery. Mm, right. So you're going to have complications. And the more procedure you do, procedures you do, statistically, you're going to get more complications. So the question is that, uh, is this good for the physical health of a person to figure out what it is. And also, if you start taking a million people and spending $42,000 a piece to figure out that it's nothing, is that financially? Right. Uh, You're back to the same to problem. Do? Back to the <laughs> same problem, right. So um, th there are two approaches to preventative medicine. One is to... Just, just regular checkups and blood tests and so forth. The other one is to actually do these imaging and scanning as long as the scanning does reveal what it is also rather than just showing you that there is something there. Got it. Right. So that's where the technology is moving to. It goes to show you how far we still have to go to oh, yeah. figuring out the human body. I mean, yes. we, we as, you know, we can argue how long, but we can say we've been humans thinking and speaking and communicating and civilized, let's say for, let, let's, let's for argument's sake, say it was the Sumerians 6,000 years ago. That's and, right. and, and, and that's where it started, right? Mm -hmm. As a species only 6,000 years. That's really not that That's much not relative that much. to all the other organisms that the earth has to offer, right? That's right. And how old it's been. So, Like birds or dinosaurs. Right. Like, of millions right. Of years. So right. like, and, and what I find fascinating being in this field is still 
how little we know about mm -hmm. the body and even the brain. We know nothing about the brain, or right. how it works. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, you and I had a conversation and you were talking to me about these, uh, the surgical tools that they had found, mm -hmm. right? Like, what, can you share that with us? That was a fascinating story. Sure. So in, uh, there's a small uh, museum, like a local museum, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than where we are right now, which is a gym. And they, they dug up uh, these artifacts from the time of the Etruscans in Tuscany, and that dated back to 2,500 years or more. And uh, they had a, a little plate with a bunch of instruments on there, and uh, the description was that these instruments were used to... Uh, make jewelry but uh, the instruments look awfully familiar and since we do neurosurgery I took some pictures and uh, took them back to UCLA and showed it to our neurosurgeon and uh, we both concluded that these are actually surgical in uh, instruments that are still in use today huh. 2500 years later that's right, that these are actually surgical instruments and they're not actually for jewelry. <laughs> because uh, they were like uh, these tiny little spoons that you pick things with. I mean, for jewelry, you don't need things like that. All right. And, and there were, for example, things uh, like scalpels and uh, uh, little tiny needles and a bunch of those. So uh, the... Um, a lot of what we do today has been around for a very long time without much of a change. Well, it seems like the instruments have been around for a long time. That's right. You know, because mm -hmm. we as a society, as a race, as a species, I should say, you know, we're first thing we have to come up with is instruments. Because mm -hmm. that's the only way you could fix things, that's figure right. things out, put things together, right? That's so right. Like, so tools. I, tools, right. right so, right. you know, it, it's, yeah. it, if, if I have to fix a wall and mm -hmm. I don't have the tools, mm -hmm. I can know how to fix it. But if I don't have the right tools, I can't fix the wall. That's correct. <laughs> so yeah. our age-old problem is always figure out the tools first, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think we're at an age in, in society where we're starting to get a mixture of physical, tangible tools and mix them with tools that have a minute aspect like nanotechnology mm -hmm. and then right. apply it to scans with actual technology. So yeah, it's, it's right. it, this is a whole new world <laughs> that, right. you know, this generation is stepping into given mm -hmm. that realistically, I mean, the technology aspect of this didn't pick up toll what, 40 years ago, 50 years 50 ago? Years, 50, right. 60 years 50, ago. 50, 60 years ago, that's right. right. That's it. So although, although, as we discussed, nanotechnology has been around for a very long time. Yes. And one of the examples was the red paint in the, uh, uh, in the uh, burial chamber of the pyramids. It's a very broad, uh, bright red paint. And when they analyzed them, it turned out they are gold nanoparticles. Uh, so when you take uh, uh, gold and you nanosize it, it turns bright red hmm. instead of being golden color. That's fascinating. Uh, but the nice thing about it is that when you nanosize it, it's still gold and it doesn't interact with oxygen or nitrogen or whatever is in the atmosphere. That's or why water. it lasts 3,000 years. It lasts 3,000 years uh -huh. beautifully without uh, losing color. 
So, uh, or for example, when you take uh, copper and you nanosize it, depending on the size, it can be any color from uh, blue all the way to red, which is the spectrum of visible light. Yeah. So you can produce any pretty much color and then to keep it from interacting with oxygen, uh, you glaze over it and that color stays like in a pottery they find that it's been 3,000, 4,000 years old since it was uh, made and still maintains its color for this long. So uh, a lot of this has been around for a long time and we have taken cues from that and but we are taking it one step farther as far as instead of uh, having uh, one composition and a particle, now we have uh, these uh, nano machines that are composed of a lot of different components rather than just one component. And they do multiple things at a time. So where is your theory on how these guys 3,000 years ago were mm -hmm. able to perform that type of procedure where they could literally, they understood mm -hmm. and they had the tools mm -hmm. to take the gold mm -hmm. and they figured out that if you turn it into nano-sized particles, right. it'll be a red paint that's going to last forever and put it on these tombs. That, like, <laughs> That's <what>? right. <laughs> and uh, it most likely it was a chemical process they came across. Mm. So they had uh, particular acids or bases or, or potions that when you put gold in it, it just uh, dissolved it into nanoparticles, which is what we do today. Hmm. We take uh, iron oxide, which is called iron 2 and iron 3, and you mix it together with extra, and you get a nanoparticle. Okay, but under, under basic conditions, under certain temperatures, and then you can control the size. But didn't they, didn't they have to have the tools to see it? Uh, How does that work? I don't know. I mean, that's the, maybe an ignorant well, question, but what, I don't... What probably happened is that they uh, used uh, different potions, let's say, or different chemicals, and once they came across the red color and applied it to something and it lasted for 100 years or 20 years or whatever, that's, that's what they needed to see. They, they needed mm. to see the final product for the intended purpose. Got it. So they didn't have an electron microscope to look at it under, but they knew that it's red and it lasts a long time. That was good enough. <laughs> so what they there we go. We're back it. to good enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we go back. Yeah, it was good enough for that. that that's right. Uh, one of the uh, issues with uh, uh, these uh, older technologies, ancient technologies, that they actually they did make records, make records of what they did, but unfortunately during the wars. Uh, in order to establish the conqueror's uh, uh, rule, one thing they did is that they burned libraries. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And it was a terrible, terrible thing that they did. Gotta love the stupidity of humanity. <laughs> uh, and the latest example was in World War II, where they burned books in, in various places. Yeah. So uh, when you want to wipe out, uh, th there's a saying I heard on the radio the other day, but I think it was some poet or some singer was that uh, they don't just kill you, they kill your image as well. 
So mm. they wipe out everything about you. Not only you're gone, they wipe out your image as well. So right. this burning of library as was a burning, uh, wiping out the image of the previous whoever was there. So a lot of these, going back to the answer to your questions, uh, how they did this, is probably there were records, but they were not lost. Because yeah. they, they were lost at some point. Hmm. So now that we've uh, discussed a little bit about the history of uh, some of this awesome technology and medicine mm -hmm. and the Egyptians, so tell us a little bit about your history. How did you come about to be who you are today? Like, uh, you know, from childhood on, like, what? tell us a little bit about your journey as to how you became a doctor of physics at UCLA. Well, I... Uh, uh, always like to build things mm. and take things apart. Uh, the funny thing is that my older brother, who is a successful business person, uh, he, for example, we had some watches when we were kids. So what I did, I took the watch apart into all different components, and my brother would go in and he would mess with the little wheel and get the watch to work again. <laughs> and he's like, no, you don't need to take it apart. I know how to get this to work. Look, you can do this. Well, I always take, took things apart <laughs> without necessarily putting them back together to work. So, <laughs> so he went on to build companies <laughs> and I went on to uh, more figuring out how things work by taking them apart. <laughs> Such as do an imaging on the brain to see just like what are the different parts of it, what can you what can you do with this? That curiosity. The, yeah. Right, it's a curiosity yeah. taking things apart. And then uh, when I uh, I wasn't particularly good at math or I didn't even know what physics was before I started college, but I had this really good professor and I started finding out there's actually reason behind things. <laughs> like for example that there's uh, there is velocity and there's momentum, and then uh, what happens when you start swinging things? Why, like, uh, if you take a, a, a bucket of water and you turn it over, the water comes out. But if you uh, start spinning it uh, vertically, even though it's over your head, and the water is facing down, but it doesn't fall. So <laughs> why, why does that happen? Right. Even though if you just take it and turn it, it falls down. So it's a centripetal force that holds it up. And uh, then uh, when you get into more nitty-gritty, like into quantum mechanics, then you start uh, learning uh, why, for example, fire when you make wood fire, it's different colors. And like I had a, one time, I was sitting with my mentor, his name is Howard Bryant in, in New Mexico. We were sitting in front of the fireplace and made a one hour discussion of how the different colors of, uh, of fire would, when, when the fire going on in the fireplace, uh, why does it go from blue to orange to red and uh, um, depending uh, what stage of the fire you were on, there were hmm. different colors. Like uh, his explanation was 
something called uh, black body radiation, where you get things at a certain temperature, they, they emit different colors. And my discussion was that, so what happens at the electron level? So the electrons, what happens is that they move to a higher state because of the uh, heat. And then when fall back down, they emit the radiation in a visible spectrum. So the, you start getting like uh, into why is uh, the leaf green and why does it why does it become red and yellow in the and brown in the in the winter? Like why is a rose red or a white rose white? So when you get into then you start discussing the what is going on down on the atomic and electronic level it becomes actually quite interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a whole world of why why these things are the, the way they are. So modern-day physicists are what philosophers used to be 500 years ago. Right, <clears throat> and those ph philosophers try to explain it in a way that would uh, apply... Uh, to, to using the tools and the explanations they, they had at the time. For example, Newton taking sunlight and passing it through the prism and seeing its different colors. Like, so why is that? Why is the white color composed of all these different colors? And it took another couple of hundred years for people to start realizing that it has to do with the uh, frequency of the uh, of the photon emission that to us look in different uh, different colors and the, like the other question of why do we see in this range of colors because uh, light is uh, photons which is electromagnetic radiation and uh, the, the electromagnetic radiation in a photon form can go anywhere from gamma rays which are extremely high frequency to very low frequency uh, uh, such as the infrared and uh, uh, and below that, so and it turns out that the answer is that uh, uh, the visible spectrum has the highest penetration into seawater. So since we evolved in seawater, or life evolved in seawater, so eyes evolved to see in seawater and the visible spectrum which was the deepest was the one that was picked by nature to to see that's why we see like from blue to red because when you shine in the water those are the one penetrate the most so these are like fascinating yeah you get you get it finding out why yeah. do we see in this it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah it turns out because that was what was available <laughs> so and then like here there are a lot of animals that can actually see ultraviolet that we can't see. Yeah. Like crows look completely different than black to other crows, but they look black to us. And uh, some animals can see like in the infrared, and we can't see infrared, so which is the uh, lower frequencies than actual red color. So, um, and so that's like the nocturnal animals, like the raccoons and stuff. Like right, that. they can yeah. or or snakes. Or snakes. Right. Or snakes. Um, like for example, uh, fish. A lot of fish, such as uh, sharks, uh, can actually see 
electromagnetic radiation in, in uh, very low frequencies, like in maybe even 600 hertz or 1,000 hertz and so forth. Uh, like sharks can feel the heart of a fish beat. So the heart uh, beats because of the uh, electrical discharges. So when you're in seawater, the seawater is conducting, when the heart discharges, the uh, electromagnetic field propagates through water, and these guys, the sharks, can actually see that. <laughs> okay, we can't. So uh, it's... Uh, That's fascinating. Right. And then, like, these, uh, you see the schools of fish? Yeah. That go into bait balls mm -hmm. and start rotating. So they have these little strips on the side of their body can actually f can feel the electromagnetic field from the other fish, and that's how they know where everybody else is. It's not necessarily by seeing them, it's by feeling the, the fields, and we can't feel those, okay? Uh, one of the interesting thing is that uh, I, I was talking, they, they did a lot of these studies of sensations in Russia, actually, mm -hmm. during the Soviet times, and I had a friend who was the head of the... Uh, radio engineering department in Moscow, who came over to the U.S. And uh, you've heard a lot of times that you say you feel somebody's in the room, even though yeah. you know it's very quiet. Yeah. So what they did, he said they took a, a person and put it in a completely dark room, okay, big room. And uh, very quietly, somebody came to the room almost 100% of the time, the person in the very dark room without any light could know there's somebody in the room. And you can call it sixth sense or whatever. So they started putting different sensors on the uh, where the person was. And it turned out that uh, the person's body uh, was picking up infrared because when a person comes in the room, they emit infrared because body's hot, is, is warm, 37 degrees. So the radiation from the heat travels pretty far, actually. And it turns out the human body is extremely sensitive to picking up infrared through skin. So we don't see it, but we can feel it. And that's mm -hmm. how you know somebody is there, even though you don't see them. Somebody comes behind you, you feel them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could have to do with air movement that you pick up with your hair. The movement of the air, because the temperature change causes airflow, but also you pick up the infrared from the body radiation that you feel. And then that probably has to do also with somebody being warm and somebody being cold. I think you can actually uh, distribute the heat through blood in different parts of your body. Somebody feels warm and somebody does not feel warm. So yeah. you just take a bunch of kids, throw them in a room and have them play Marco Polo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. right. So, but you know, it's fascinating because you know, for me, I, I, I love studying the deep ancient philosophies and, mm -hmm. and and the what was metaphysics at the time, mm -hmm. right? And and a lot of it has to do with they talk about frequency mm -hmm. and. In today's world, we're starting to have the tools to measure to frequency. Measure frequencies, right? So, sensors. So, what know. used to be this hoopla or make believe mm -hmm. or uh, sixth sense sort of say you mm -hmm. never even hear that word anymore. That term, sixth right. sense. Now it's you. Now it's 
turned more scientific as frequency. <laughs> and, and now it's measured. So it's no longer a sense. Now it's something that's measurable. And now we can define it and say, okay, you know, here are the benchmarks, here are the That's factors, right. here's how you can actually see and measure something, right? Or iPhone, for example, if the person <laughs> texts you, you know they're there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting you say that. But the, the thing is, that's what that is, right? If, mm -hmm. if, if you're on the other side of the country and mm -hmm. I text high, that's yeah. a frequency that your phone picks up and, right. and, and you feel that I'm there. That's right. <laughs> so instead of the communication through the frequency of voice, like we're doing over here, you can uh, take your intentions and translate it into text and send it over the uh, different frequencies across the country. So is that the beginning stage of uh, telepathy and understanding how to, you know, communicate without speaking? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you can call it mechanical telepathy, but I think that there is <laughs> ways that people communicate with each other without spoken language. That's, I think, pretty... Yeah, like when my son does something wrong, I look at him yeah, a certain you know, way. Oh, he knows that's he's right. in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So so that's very cool. So it, it, it all comes back in full circle, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We started as a civilization... 6,000 years ago with all these questions, these mm -hmm. whys. And we kind of turned uh, on the button, mm -hmm. and here we are 6,000 years later, now mm -hmm. we're starting to measure frequency. There, there, so uh, it, it seems to me that it's a good point you bring up because it, it seems that what we are doing with technology, we are accentuating and extending our senses. Yeah, so that's like, well said, yeah. Yeah, we develop an electron microscope or a microscope or a telescope to see things that we can't normally see. Right. So we are extending our vision, for example, with those things. Or with text, we extend our voice across the country to somebody else, right? right. So, so it seems like everything we are doing, we're just extending our senses as they exist right now. No, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, I think it's important as a society, especially for what you do also, mm -hmm. for us to have an open mind to understand there are discoveries mm -hmm. that happen constantly now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to stay ahead of it in trying to understand how do we make these discoveries more real by more scientific data. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we had a discussion the other day about pseudoscience, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we do is, you know, we measure your DNA. Mm -hmm. And everyone, you know, it's the question right now with that is, is that pseudoscience? And, and my question to the, my, my answer to them is, it's, it's, you could deem it what you want to deem it, but the reality of the situation is, is there is this platform and we have this tiny, minute aspect of this platform figured out. Mm -hmm. And we're all playing with the same field. Mm -hmm. And unless we get more participants and mm -hmm. unless we get more involvement and mm -hmm. unless we figure out more tests through application, mm -hmm. we're not going to find things out. So, That's right. So, you know, and, and you brought up a good point and you said penicillin at one point was a pseudoscience. That's right. <laughs> And, and, and look at it today. It yeah. saves lives left and right. That's and right. that wasn't that long ago. That's right. So, we, you know, I think it, it's, I, I love what you're doing with the nanotechnology because that's the type of stuff that we need. We mm -hmm. need guys like you pushing the button a little bit. There's a lot of people <laughs> you, working in the field. Yeah. No, no, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's to figure out, okay, you know, 
pick things apart (laughs) (laughs) and ask why. (laughs) So another research that I do has to do with uh, uh, determining the physical properties of the human brain. For example, uh, uh, when you do cholesterography, you take a piece of, uh, uh, you take a crystal of salt, for example, right? And when you put it under a microscope, you see it like it's a cube. Then uh, when you do X-ray scattering, you see that the sodium and chlorine are distributed in a certain way. It has a certain conductivity of heat and electricity. So you start uh, defining the structure of this. Now, uh, as far as brains concerned, there are billions of samples of it in the, in the world, both human and animals and so forth. But so one of the projects that we are doing, we are uh, assuming that brain is a, is a material structure that occurs naturally. So salt, for example, occurs naturally. The brain also occurs naturally. So there's a lot of it in the world. So we started measuring what we do with the salt crystal. Measure is uh, heat conductivity, electrical conductivity, optical conductivity, and then we look at it under microscope to see what structure is distributed, what are these structures made of, and so forth. So what we have found out so far is that uh, uh, the brain is an actual semiconductor, just like a computer chip, okay? It's uh, much more uh, complicated than any computer chip that we know of or we build. But, and the reason for that would be very simple because the brain needs to conduct electricity, but it can short out. So you have conductors such as copper or gold, which uh, almost freely conduct electricity. Then you have non-conductors such as uh, glass or plastic that don't conduct at all. So now you have everything in between, which is a semiconductor. Now, a semiconductor, in true sense, there are five criteria. For example, two of them is that the uh, uh, conductivity of electricity has to be within a certain range. And also, uh, the uh, 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 temperature dependence and optical dependence needs to be I- in a certain way. And so far, three of those apply, for the, uh, apply to the brain. So um, this goes back to uh, the discussion we had about extending our senses. Unknowingly, we have come up with semiconductors to build uh, computers and TVs and so forth, but it turns out this is also an extension of how our own brain works. Hmm. Uh, It wasn't by design, but (laughs) it turns out to get something, to do something intelligent, it needs to have the properties of the brain. So, that so one intelligent life force creating another intelligent life intelligent force. Li- exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So we are basically uh, machines that are building machines. Yeah. And if we get really good at it, and that's what people are trying to do, is to have those machines also build machines. So we are like one stage removed or one step removed from, from actually having our machines build machines, which we do to some extent, like robots building stuff. Right. So, you know, so I guess the the question, you know, and some of the questions that people have that's mm-hmm. a little scary for them with that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. at what point do the machines that we build mm-hmm. to be able to think in certain patterns mm-hmm. can naturally evolve to think in different patterns that we're not prepared for? 
Right, that, that's the problem with, uh, from what I understand, it's with the applications of artificial intelligence to medicine. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of the uh, uh, things that has not been resolved yet, is that when you go to your doctor and uh, you say that uh, I have a fever, so your doctor orders some tests, and he comes back and he tells you, you have an ear infection, okay? And he says, the reason I know that is that I did this test and this test and I look inside your ear, it was red and your pain, you have pain over in this area and when I push it, this happens. This is why I think you have ear infection and this is the medicine for it. Mm -hmm. The way artificial intelligence, as far as uh, application to medicine is concerned. For example, you can, and, and, and there's technology out there and there are startup companies that do this. You can give them a slide of pathology of a tissue of, of an animal or a human, whatever. It can come up a lot better than a pathologist tell you what disease that slide shows, mm. okay? It, it, it trains itself to to tell you that, but it cannot tell you why it decided you had cancer. That's the biggest problem we have right now, is that it can tell you what you have with almost 100% certainty, but it can't tell you why it came up with it. So the machine can essentially confirm what our brain can already think of, but it can't think past it. our brain because we still haven't figured out the reason. Well, we can figure out the reason. So Some we can it. reason, right. Right. We can tell you exactly why we think that slide is showing, let's say, stomach cancer. The machine comes up and says, I'm 100% sure you have stomach cancer, but it cannot tell you why it why? thinks that. Mm. So, so we are at the stage where the machines are very good at doing stuff, but they can't tell you why, right. how, how they came up with that. The second issue is that these machines are very much dependent on the input data. For example, I was reading uh, one of the... Uh, uh, projects that, for example, um, recognize if a computer can recognize a dog. So what Google or whatever company did this, they went around the world and gave people uh, like five cents per dog to find any picture of the dog they could find and put it in this database. And they uh, uh, also told them to take picture of dogs and put them in the database. So now you have, the computer has a huge database of dog pictures, and with uh, neural networking algorithms, it can, if you give it a dog with glasses on and a sweater on, it can go through the database and come back and tell you you're looking at a dog or looking at a bicycle, okay? But that's dependent on these millions of people or thousands of people around the world inputting the data. So the computer can go out and look for data. Uh, so it then becomes a circular question, is that how does a computer recognize a dog to take a picture of if he doesn't have the database to figure out what the dog is in the first place? Got it. But at the same time, humans are exactly the same way. Right. When a child is born, he has no idea what a dog is. Right. But over time, it learns. It's processing information. It's a process, and, and by input from others right. or by itself, it can figure it out. So. That step between recognizing the dog or being trained to recognize the dog, that step is something that needs to be crossed before these machines 
can become uh, propagating like you're talking about. So th th that's the barrier we have not crossed yet, to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. a and, and that's a that's probably another God knows how many years. Uh, exactly. So we we are uh, quite far away from Terminator movies becoming reality. Yeah. That's well, it's interesting. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast, and he had one of the leading guys in the in, in artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. you know, on the show, and, and his name slips my mind at the moment. But they were having the conversation about what we were talking about earlier about you know uh, driver driverless cars, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, he, he gave a phenomenal explanation. Mm -hmm. He said, look, mathematically, you can get a car to drive on the highway and measure itself to make correct decisions mm -hmm. once it's going, you know, with a whole nother pack of cars. Mm -hmm. Now, you're pulling up to a school and you're about to, you know, go past this school and there's a kid across and he's about to cross the street mm -hmm. as a human being you lock eyes with that kid mm -hmm. your locking eyes with that kid mm -hmm. can determine whether that kid is going to go across the street or not mm -hmm. and that'll make the decision on where you're going to be in terms of how you're going to go you're mm -hmm. going to stop you're going to turn he was like we are so far away from getting a machine to think that way for this to be okay that it's not even like a question so people that are like oh driverless cars are going to be out in the next like year or two and it's just going to be everywhere you're like uh <laughs> well, probably not so what right the practical way uh that being approached by, by some people is to have cars actually communicate with each other and maybe even uh, put a chip in people's cell phones that communicates with the cars in the street. So that, yeah. right, so that the intent is known through these communications between cars and also communication between cars and the road. So, so it, the technology is there, but the infra infrastructure is not I, there. Right, the infrastructure is right, it's huge, that's huge, right. Yeah. yeah, but then again, the infrastructure for phones were not available 120 years ago. Right. Infrastructure for internet was not available 40 years ago right. or 30 years ago. And infrastructure for cell phones was not available like even 20 years ago. Yeah, like a hundred years ago. To the extent that it is now. No, yeah. it's true. I mean, a hundred yeah. years ago, if I told you, you were going to have something the size of you, the palm of your hand, mm -hmm. okay? And with a click of a button, you were mm -hmm. able to see and mm -hmm. communicate with someone on the other side of the world, mm -hmm. they'd probably be burning you at the stake saying this is like witchcraft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what you're talking about. Space Odyssey 2001. Right, like, I mean, exactly right, right? <laughs> right. So, right. so it's like, right. wait, what? You know, so, and, and here we are, not that much long, you know, not that much later in, in mm -hmm. figuring out this technology. I think the unique aspect of the time in which we live in is what we talked about. All of these components mm -hmm. are now starting to come together. Mm -hmm. And they're That's allowing right. us more tools mm -hmm. for measurement. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we, at a, we, we as a species are always figuring out, for, we're trying to figure out what's that complete aspect before we die. Mm -hmm. Meaning, what's the complete aspect of the human being before we die? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a question that, I, in my opinion, will never get answered because of the constant evolution of the human being. Mm -hmm. So it, there is no stop mm -hmm. because, you know, from a physics standpoint, the universe is always vibrating and moving. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's immeasurable, the frequencies and understanding where we are and who we are and how far we can go. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and 
these are such fascinating subjects. And for the first time, I, I'm, I, I love seeing that physics has now allowed us mm -hmm. to combine this spiritual world with the medical world, with mm -hmm. the scientific world. Mm -hmm. And now more than ever, the discussions are not so much that these are two separate aspects of thought, but more of there is measurements and tools that can bring first time. That's a very interesting uh, discussion is that um, I took a, a meditation retreat with this guy named Alan Wallace, who's in San, Santa Barbara Institute in, in California. And uh, exactly to that point, uh, you, you talked about telepathy yeah. and in, in uh, this Buddhism uh, and this meditation stuff, they, I shouldn't say stuff, this. No, I understand. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that was one of the discussions. Uh, they were like, he invited 35 neuroscientists and physicists and, and Man, would I like so to far. be a fly in the room? So, so we, we were, so he wanted to exactly to see if he can get interested, uh, uh, get, get people interested in, in measuring, for example, electroencephalogram, which we do for various reasons on the brain to see what happens like to brain waves during meditation. Yeah. So one of the discussions that he, he came up, he says a lot of people ask him that uh, people can communicate their thoughts to each other without actually talking, which is true. Right. So, uh, and uh, he said a lot of people tell him, well, what is the form that this communication happens? And he said, the form is uh, very similar to when you take a cell phone and you take something uh, or you take a picture, a physical picture, and you send it across the country to somebody else. What is the form of this picture when it's in the electromagnetic waves going to the other side of the country? Man. So, so we are at the stage where we know that the picture is becoming translated into something else and goes across and, and gets registered and becomes a picture again. So, uh, are there what are the mediums that transmit? Right. The, the, this and that, that's something that we have no clue. Are, yeah, people yeah. are working on right now to figure out what it, what it is. No, we have no right. clue. You know, in in, in ancient uh, in ancient India, there was a, there was a guy who um, who came up with this whole book about the Akashic principle. Mm -hmm. And and you know, and it was essentially if you read that what he's talking about then that he mm -hmm. was able to do in meditation mm -hmm. is our communication through the internet today. That's right. <laughs> he would he could mentally or astrally or whatever, mm -hmm. he could take himself to a place where he could devise the answer mm -hmm. from sort of say out of the universe or out of the blue, mm -hmm. pull it back in mm -hmm. to the physical form mm -hmm. and tell you what it is. That's right. And, you know, again, this is, sounds so nuts, you know, so long ago, and it did for so long. And now here we are in this information world of the internet where we're communicating because we understand 
we have the tools to say, okay, we can press this button, mm -hmm. it'll form this image, mm -hmm. and then you on the other side will receive that image mm -hmm. by pressing that button. That's now, right. what happens in between, nobody has any clue. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah we, do, we do know, and the reason for that is that uh, in order to enable that, we needed to understand how to do this. So we do right. understand how this image gets translated. Mm -hmm. But as far as the, what, the human interactions, e we don't know. Exactly, right? right? So right. We understand how it gets there. But, but, we, right. but we don't understand, like you just said, what how, what does it turn into in this middle stage? Like, what, what what's going on what there? What is the medium? The <laughs> right. right. We have no clue. That's right. That's and right. to me, it's so fascinating because mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. it goes again. We're, mm -hmm. we're now at a place where we're starting to ask the right whys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's fascinating. So, Masood, you know, I, I, I'm going to kind of conclude us there on sure. that lovely, lovely thought. And uh, I, you know, love having you here. This was, uh, this was a really, really cool and in-depth conversation about a lot of things. And, you know, you can reach out to us at uh, sam at helixandgene.com and ask any questions you may have. If somebody, wants, some of our listeners want to contact Contact you or have mm -hmm. any uh, any questions? Sure. How would they reach you? How would they contact you? Uh, so they can uh, email uh, at uh, octari a k h t a r i m at g Perfect. And we'll have Joe, uh, my man Joe here. We'll have uh, we'll have everything set up in terms of that information mm -hmm. on the Zenatomy 101 Helix and Gene podcast to kind of uh, have that information there. So if anybody does want to contact you, or have mm -hmm. any questions, they can mm -hmm. they can reach out to you directly. Or if you send your questions to me, I will make sure that uh, Masood gets them and gets back to you. Um, <clears throat> so check us out at Helix and Gene on Instagram. If you have any questions, get back to us. If, uh, if anything, we're here. And uh, thanks for joining us today on this sure. uh, podcast and uh, I look forward to doing this with you again the next time you're out here. Sure. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Excellent. Thank you for having me.